Welcome. You are listening to Tick Tech Talk. Hi, Evan. Hi, Marcel. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing okay. You're you're uh, you're you're heading out on a trip in the next couple of days. Yeah, it's uh, the wonderful Asian tour for a week, uh, a couple of days in Shanghai, and then a couple of days in beautiful Gangnam, Korea. Oh, Gangnam, where they get Gangnam style. Gangnam style. No? Yes. Uh, my family has told me that if I try and do a horse riding gesture and take a photo of myself, that they will do damage to me. Oh, I'm, I'm, do I'm doing that right now. <laughs> I don't know. I would pay to see that. Like I would totally, you know, and, and to put it all over the internet. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll take it, but I'll, I'll take the picture, but it'll just be for you. I dare not show it to family. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm, I've, I haven't worried about um, uh, making fun of myself or, or uh, embarrassing myself for a long time. So the idea that people could possibly be embarrassed about anything always amuses me greatly. So there you go. Anyway, so yeah, so so basically, you're you're like you're not sleeping at the moment. You're getting ready for a trip, but here you are doing the shows. So. Well, I just don't sleep a whole lot regularly, but now it's even a little bit more compressed as I clean things up before going. All right, so this is episode five. Do we have any feedback? I don't know. I didn't even ask you that. I'm just happy that we've made it to five. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk politics because everybody loves politics, right? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Let's talk Canadian and politics so that, you know, we don't, uh, you know, not, we don't have to go through the whole Trump thing at the moment. Good. Compared, yeah. compared, an election. To, compared to the poop shows going on right now in the US <laughs> and the UK, Canada stuff is downright boring. Oh, Canada stuff is always boring. Let's be perfectly honest here. Although at the moment we've got the West, uh, now the, uh, uh, my team won, so, you know, I'm happy, but... <laughs> How about yours? Was that your team? Their team is not happy. <laughs> no, the other team is not happy. I mean, we're talking about we, the we've had we have a resurgent actually. Just you know, for the people who might not be in Canada who are listening to this, uh, the uh, the Liberals uh, have formed government again. It's a minority government, but it's a strong minority. They've got a you know they've got a pretty solid uh, base to work from. Uh, the Bloc Québécois, the separatist party in Quebec, is resurgent, and now we're hearing about Wexit. Not Brexit, but Wexit, because the West apparently is not happy with the way things turned out. Yeah, Alberta, and, uh, Saskatchewan, and a couple of bits of BC are unhappy because they're the ones that voted for the opposition, whereas the party that uh, you know, your your team, uh, <laughs> well, your team essentially did. In, in, it's more of an urban. It's more of an urban rural thing, I think, than anything else, except for the fact that the uh, the support for the opposition conservatives came mostly from, uh, you know, the oil sands projects, the people that really make money and ha create jobs uh, extracting oil from really crappy tar. Um, so the, the, the opposition, they swept Alberta, they swept Saskatchewan. Uh, and they did bits and pieces, but they didn't win because they couldn't get into the cities. I had a look at the map. The conservatives got no seats in Vancouver, no seats in Winnipeg, no seats in Halifax, no seats uh -huh. in Ottawa. 
Yeah. No seats in London. And of course, no seats in Toronto or Montreal. And so when you, when, when you think about that, and so you have a Wexit. So, you know, what can we have a rebellion if the cities aren't happy? Uh, well, that's true. I mean, Toronto could separate on its own. Uh, it's, it's actually interesting. I don't know if you saw this, but there was actually, um, I, in fact, I went and posted it uh, in between posting about bees and, uh, and unicorn spam and stuff like this. But uh, there was a picture right after the election, uh, Electoral Cartogram of Canada. I should put a link in there because it's really quite fascinating. And what it does is it actually, like, you take a look at the map, you know, they, they show you the map of Canada and they show you these big blue areas or big light blue areas, you know, for the blood and stuff. And then they show you these little tiny red areas. It's like, see, the, you know, see, most of the country, you know, is this, you know, and most of the country. And if you actually break it down based on population and riding, in other words, if, as, as one person quipped, and I thought this was excellent, land doesn't vote. Okay, so when you show these huge swaths of land where there's like 50 people who live there and they all voted in one direction, that actually doesn't really tell you anything about, you know, um, what people are voting for. So I should put that in the show notes, the electoral cartogram of Canada, because it actually, it actually shows you a population regional map as opposed to this, you know, massive swaths based on geography. Because let's face it, there are areas where nobody lives there. Like nobody. But well, there's a riding. You know. There's a single riding for the entire, uh, for all of uh, Nunavut. And so if you look at that, I think that went NDP. So you look at the map and you got this massive swath of orange. Uh, whereas the NDP actually did really badly this election. But the, the fascinating thing to me... Um, you know, from an open source openness, if you would, point of view on this, is what happened in Quebec. And so part of the reason why the Bloc Québécois, you know, the nationalist Québécois group uh, got in is because all the quote-unquote coast-to-coast parties were against the secularism law in Quebec. Yes, yes, that There's is true. a very controversial bill going on in Quebec right now that essentially says that any civil servants who face the public and so that means everything from a desk clerk to a, a, desk clerk to a teacher to a cop uh, cannot show any outward signs uh, that promote that promote what religion they are. And so that's that's Bill Twenty One, isn't it? Is it Twenty Three or Twenty One? Twenty One. I, I lose track of the numbers. All right, I'll, I'll have to look that up. Uh, uh, secularism secular. Bill. I'll put that in the show notes. And so uh, this is something that sort of goes against the grain. Of, of, of liberals in a sense and saying, you know, how dare you enforce secularism by not allowing people to, uh, you know, to wear their brand, if you would, when they meet the public. I mean, I've always thought of it, you know, the Christian cross is the world's most successful brand. That, I won't argue with that. And so, uh, you know, to a secularist, having crosses or crescents or stars of David or things like that on clothing is basically, you know, the religious world's Nike and Adidas. Yeah. Except that with really, you know, I, I, I almost agree with you, but I disagree in that, in that perception. And I'll tell you why when somebody is wearing a t-shirt that says Nike on it. Okay. I don't feel like they're expressing um, a, like, like they're, 
they're proselytizing. I don't feel like, I mean, people wear Nike shirts and, and stuff like this, often branded clothing, for instance, because it's on sale. They got it free, you know, or, you know, or maybe they really do like Nike for whatever reason, because, you know, some athlete is wearing this particular thing or whatever. I think when you start talking religious brands and you're showing it to the public, and I'm, you know, I'm going to play devil's advocate as much as possible here. Um, I think you're actually expressing something more akin to uh, here, you know, you're signaling that this is the thing that makes you better than they are. And, you know, and this is, this is treading on really scary ground here, but I feel like, I, I never feel like religion is like, you know, hey, we're all running our own version of the operating system here. And isn't it wonderful that we've got all these different flavors, you know, and they all work together in one way, shape or form. They're all derivative of, you know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Linux slash Unix slash Multics, if you go back far enough for the Babbage uh, engine. We'll but, get back to that. We'll get back to that. Yeah, yeah, but but it's 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 more an expression. It, it's a much deeper expression than that. It's it's a moral, ethical, uh, and sometimes um, cultural superiority expression. So, like I said, I'm trying to play devil's advocate here because. Uh, the first incarnation of this law in Quebec. Do you remember this? Do you remember the first incarnation when they tried to push this through about three or four years ago? Now, so. yeah, okay. In the first incarnation, they said, oh, you know, we're going we're gonna to do this with the religious symbols. We're going to make sure that, uh, you know, they're not, the front-facing religious symbols are just, you know, gone. Except for the cross. Okay, because the cross has historical, uh, you know, significance. And, of course, there's a cross hanging in the... Uh, in the, uh, what do you call it? The, um, the legislative National Assembly, exactly. The Legislative National Assembly in Quebec. And it, there's a massive cross on top of the mountain in the middle of the island. And neither of those are due for an overhaul. Because yeah, but you know what? That was, believe it or not, for me, that was the showstopper, okay? Because I, I tend to be of the opinion that if you're going to say something like, hey, you know, none of these things are allowed, uh, you don't allow them for anybody. And I mean, giving special, you know, giving special dispensation to a cross I, I, in the National Assembly, you know, that, that was a non-starter. Well, they had the lame answer of, well, this is our tradition. And yeah, so, I know. Well, that, that just is lame. You're right. Just because totally we've, we've always done the thing that we're currently outlawing, you know, people that have done it for a while get a pass. No, that doesn't, I, that doesn't work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, you know, I mean... It's like passing a lot, like, obviously, I'm, 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 I'm going hyperbolic here, like big time. But it's like saying, you know, drinking and driving wasn't illegal. And I used to drink and drive before the law was passed. So I should be grandfathered in because, you know, historically, this was always an okay thing for me to do. Now that they passed a law, that means, you know, new drivers shouldn't be allowed to drink and drive, but I should still be able to do it. Or if you got drunk on wine coolers, you're up to be arrested and put in jail. But if it's bourbon whiskey, which has been around forever, well, then you get a pass. Or wine or champagne, exactly. <laughs> anyway, but not wine that has kangaroos on the label because they're too new. Yeah, I know, but some of those wines are really good. Let's be perfectly honest, okay? <laughs> but, I mean, part of the problem is, I guess, uh, I've been exposed to a little bit too much uh, cereal box MBA training. And as a result now, I tend to look through a lot of these things through branding. And when somebody wears Nike or they wear something overt, it's basically trying to say who they are, what they identify with. And if you believe branding people in marketing, it also means you identify with certain sets of values. 
Some right, you're, you're, you're signaling certain values. I mean, they call it, in fact, they actually call it virtue or value signaling, right? Right, so, you know, somebody who wears a Chick-fil-A shirt in the LG, <laughs> uh, in, in, into the uh, LGBT section of Toronto is trying to make an overt statement as much as any cross could do. True, or they're a complete idiot that never logs on to social media, that never turns on a radio or television. They're going, I don't understand. I mean, this is great chicken, man. Like, why are people so upset? But brands spend an awful lot of money trying to associate themselves with a lifestyle and with an ethic. Of course. Right? So when Nike made a big deal when they signed up Colin Kaepernick after he'd run into all this headache with the U.S. government, with Trump and with others about... Yeah, going down on one knee and all that stuff. Yeah, Exactly. So what happens? Nike does a commercial with him. So that means when somebody's wearing a Nike shirt in their own way, it means that they are sharing that same ethic that says Colin Kaepernick's an okay guy. Again, again, I, I'm... In all of this, I presuppose, like, I mean, let's face it, we are all connected. We are all taking part in social media, but it, it never ceases to amaze me when someone like, you know, how there's this perception that because you know something, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a phrase for this, but because you know something, you assume everyone else does. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in some cases, I think it true, people, you know, don't know, like, you know, they're, they're not, everybody is not as plugged in or as aware of, you know, every one of these things that are going on as other people are. It's like, it's like if somebody mentions something on, I don't know, a TV show like Survivor, is that still on? Does that still exist? Unfortunately, yes. Okay, I, well, I tried to watch it once about, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, whatever it was, and uh, never made it past one episode. But, you know, people will, t will make references to that. And I guess I've been around long enough that if somebody says, vote you off the island, you know, I know what that means. But, but I, I only know that, you know, like tangentially, you know, I mean, I, I understand that there's something about people being voted off the island, but that's about as far as I can take that one. Yeah. Whereas I just think of that, oh, we're getting into mob rule, are we? <laughs> Speaking of mob rule, politics, hey, listen, we should leave politics, but I do want to say that I'm actually very sad. Because, uh, you know, uh, uh, an old friend of mine, and, uh, and I'm sure you must have met him at one time, because he used to write for, uh, you know, for some of the Linux media, like uh, some of the magazines and so forth, including, I think, uh, he may have even written for Jupiter News at one time, uh, or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember the places. Uh, but, um, but David DeBerg Graham, who was uh, one of the MPs in government, and he was a guy that was actually regularly bringing up issues of openness and privacy, you know, and free software, free access to information. Sadly, he lost his seat. And, he, and, and that saddens me not just because, you know, he was, as we put it on my team, but, uh, but because I don't feel like there are that many voices left in government that actually take these issues seriously. Would you disagree? I, I don't know if it's a matter of taking the issues seriously. It's just they don't know about them. Well, understanding the issue then, yes. In, in other words, they can't be bothered. There's so many other hot button things. So between the stuff that's local in somebody's writing that they have to worry about and, you know, the, the, the big issues, you know, immigration, education, healthcare, whatever. And that beyond that, there's a handful of politicians that sort of stake out a niche for themselves and being an expert in this and that. But there's not many. 
So uh, the only person I know in Canadian politics right now who's still got their seat in the House is a fellow named Charlie Angus. And, and he's an NDP, right? He's an NDP, and he represents okay. the Northern Ontario riding of Timmins. So that's on the map, actually, one of the, the, the larger swatches of orange. And um, I've, I've never met him, but I follow him on social media, and I watch what he's doing, and he seems up on the issues. And, uh, I mean, we've got bigger issues not just to do with, uh, you know, say, open source specifically, but just in some of Canada's IT challenges. Like we have far too little competition in telecom space, which leads to far too high prices for telecom. <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a regular uh, bitch for a lot of Canadians. Yeah, we do pay an insane amount for, regular for bitch. You know, mobile uh, But I don't understand the approaches. So for instance, the NDP's approach, Charlie Angus's party, basically said, we're going to cap prices. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm always kind of wary of price controls. But what the thing everyone's missing is we don't have much competition here. And I think we've dealt about this on a previous podcast. That we did. There's, we did. there's just far too little competition. And just the sniff of saying, okay, Canada's going to let in Vodafone or Verizon or T-Mobile or whatever, just yeah, we, that, that yeah, will we, actually pass muster, I think might be enough to get the other ones uh, to, to, to blink. You already have a situation where mobile rates are much cheaper in some provinces than others, and the main determining factor is where there is competition. So for instance, in Quebec, you have another mobile player named Videotron, which doesn't exist. Yes, that is true, yes, yes. And mobile prices are cheaper in Quebec than in much of the rest of the country because of that additional competition for Videotron. I mean, you don't have to look very hard to see where the answers are to this. And it's just a little bit of competition will go a long way. And I'm hoping that between Charlie and uh, the Liberal Party that is back in the country, uh, you know, if, if I had a number one thing to poke at government right now, it would be to have more openness in government as well as uh, more competition in the telecom space. If they can do those things, I'll be happy. Do you, do you think that's, you know, I guess that brings up the question of what the election was about, so to speak. People have been arguing about this since the election happened. And, um, and like issues of issues that are important to you and me, you know, like I said, you know, things like, like communication rates and, uh, and openness and, and uh, policy, technology and policy, you know, that sort of policies around that sort of thing. Policy it's like anything. This was a referendum on peer on, on just peer. On just well, I know it was, I know it was, but, but the idea that, that now we have three seats to the greens and, uh, and of course the NDP did not suffer as badly as people thought they were going to suffer. And the resurgent Bloc Québécois, which is really, really focused on, like, yes, I understand that, you know, they're the separatist party, but they're, they're heavily focused on environmental concerns. To me, in some ways, yeah, it was a referendum on Trudeau, but it was also a referendum on pipelines, you know, and, and, uh, and the environment as we let it continue. And I, oh, the environmental issue is going to be a biggie because more people and more parties in Parliament right now are into more assertive action on climate change. Whereas the Conservative Party 
actively went against it. There was actually a couple, there was actually a leader's debate on environmental issues that the conservative leader sat out. I mean, it's, it's a real, this is a real nasty impasse. So you have the government having not only supported a pipeline, but bought it off of the pipeline. Oh God, yeah, I know, you know, yeah, okay. Yeah, and, then oh, they they over, the and then they go to the oil to the oil provinces and they say, don't you love us? We just spent billions of dollars on a pipeline. Buying your pipeline, exactly. We buy your pipeline, what more do you want? But you know what's crazy about that? What's crazy about that is the Americans don't even want the pipeline. Like, I know Trump wants the pipeline, but nobody else wants the pipeline. I mean, all of the players, I mean, there's a, there's a huge not in my backyard thing happening. All the players that, you know, would have the pipeline go through their area don't actually want the pipeline going through their area. So even if you buy the damn thing, even if you've got the contract, even if you're saying, you know, we love pipelines, we want to build this thing, we're going to make it happen. The fact that nobody else wants it makes it really hard to put the damn thing down, you know? But then you have the producing provinces that are saying, we've got all this stuff we want to take out of the earth and we can't send it to anywhere. Yeah, but there's, there's already too much fuel out there. There's a glut of fuel out there. And, and the, somebody was telling me this. I mean, I was listening to the radio a few days ago and they were talking about the, how much it costs to actually yank that stuff out of the ground. Mm -hmm. You know, and it costs more than you can make selling it. So oh, absolutely. And until oil rises above a certain price per gallon. And that's never happening again. And and so that's the weird thing because they've invested so much money into the tar sands that it's almost like they have to keep the equipment running, even if they're losing money on every barrel. I don't totally understand the economic. Well, that's, that's the idea of sunk costs. You know, it's like, well, I've already spent the money, so I can't possibly abandon it and go do something else. And people are weird that way. It's, 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 not, it's not an Alberta trait. It's a, it's a human trait. It's like, we've put all this time, energy, and money into this. Yeah, it's obviously a bad idea, but we can't like abandon it. I know, but I, I, I wish, I, I mean, I'm sure the issue is bigger than I'm making it out to be, but I wish that the energy provinces like, uh, like Alberta and Saskatchewan would take their expertise in energy and bring that to, you know, R&D in clean energy, R&D into oh, absolutely. wind or whatever. And at this point, it seems like they're doubling down on fossil fuels when they've got all this built-in expertise that should be rooted elsewhere and yet it appears and i'm thinking superficially this is like talk radio stuff <laughs> a variation of that uh is it's is 23 degrees past the hour oh, sorry go ahead. <laughs> right i couldn't do that if i tried <laughs> and you have the provinces that are essentially doubling down and saying well you know we've got to get rid of the carbon tax and we've got to build the pipelines and we've got to figure more ways to get this expensive oil out to the coastlines so we could ship it to China because they'll eat it. Nobody else will eat it. Um, you know, and, and um, anyway, so. Well, you know how, you know how I hate to court controversy and you know how I never say anything to, to, you know, to, I, I never start any fires on social media or I never, I never upset anyone. You know that, right? <laughs> what are you setting us up for? <laughs> A few weeks before the election, there was a there was a um, a conservative MP that was on the radio talking on the current on CBC, and I, and I, I don't have the exact date, and I probably could not find it to save my life, because this is like I said a few months ago, and um, the 
there, I actually left a message. I tweeted to CBC Radio and I said, why does this, the idea or the, uh, the suggestion of perhaps we should be spending more energy or more, re you know, more resources, and I'm not talking about like, you know, fuel and oil resources, I'm talking about, you know, people resources, um, trying to develop some of these clean energy things, which are actually paying off in like all other parts of the world that are embracing this, you know, why is this not part of the discussion that you were having on the radio with this person? And I got so much hate on Twitter for having mentioned this. I mean, people were like coming down on me, telling me what an idiot I was, that I was some privileged Ontarian that I just didn't understand. And all I, all I did was ask CBC, perhaps you could have asked this question as well. And it just came down on me like a ton of bricks. So, so yeah, I think that, I, oh, I, temper, don't, tempers, I don't know how we get past this. I really don't. Tempers are really, really uh, fried on this. I mean, somebody wrote, uh, painted a mural in Alberta of uh, Greta Thorberg. And yes, that's right. Yes, I remember so this. There was a painting on, there was a, a, a wall where somebody painted a mural. And that mural did, of her didn't last like days before somebody spray painted, this is oil country. Hey, we should, okay, let's talk about something else. Have you, are, yeah, are, you talk this out. Let's talk. Yeah, do you want to, do you want to talk about, do you want to talk about TV shows or, or movies or anything I want like to talk that? Unix. You want to talk about Unix? Yes. Like, like we talk about, like we talk about technology on this show? Well, we have to have some kind of reference. Oh, all right, all right. Unix. I love Unix. I love Unix. I really, really do. And I love Linux, which by the way, as you know, is, is just another form of Unix. <laughs> and every Unix person will be more than happy to remind you every time you use the L word. I mean, um, I'm old enough to have been part of the transition period where Unix was still at the top of its game when it came to running the world's mid to mid to large computers, right? The largest stuff was still IBM VM mainframes. And, you know, at the low end, you still had windows and dos and and all of that but it and the middle ground was becoming solidly unix territory and all of the major vendors hp ibm uh digital equipment at the time uh and and others and they had slowly been migrating away from their proprietary uh operating systems to all having uh, gelled on some form of unix and that was uh -huh. being driven by application vendors that were saying we don't want to have a separate, you know, a totally separate code base. If we're writing for Wang or we're writing, writing for DG or HP or whatever. Uh, yeah, there was a DG back then too. Uh, there was this whole plethora of different companies making these medium sized computers and they were all running their own system. And Unix did a great job of being the great unifier. It didn't totally accomplish its task because there were still, you know, variations of Unix, you know, the same way that there's different denominations of a church. Uh, you know, they still believe in the same God, but they- I, I, thought, I thought we'd left that behind. Oh, no, no. Computers <laughs> are religion too. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And, but, and, and might I remind you that there was Maltics before Unix? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Into the- Actually, uh, you know, maybe we'll find them. Um, <laughs> But I mean, I was around during the great Unix wars where you had AT&T and Sun on one side and you had uh, IBM and HP and DEC on the other. 
and this one had System 5, and the other one had this thing called OSF1, and they were battling it out, and, you know, who was going to win? And the answer was neither, because by the time any of that sorted out, this Linux thing had come around and swamped them all. Yes, I, I believe it or not, I actually remember when that happened. I actually do. And then, of course, I mean, Linux had a had quite the history as well as, well, okay, so theoretically, it was 50 years ago, you were saying that uh, that Bell Labs, which is now, you told me it was owned by Nokia? Yes. Do a search for Nokia. When did this happen? Do a search for Nokia Bell Labs. That's that what just, the name of it is now. That totally freaks me out, man. It's, oh. Wow. Okay. Well, anyway, didn't didn't Microsoft buy Nokia at one point, and then yes. Google bought Nokia? And... Well, Microsoft bought Nokia. Right. And then all Nokia phones were loaded with Windows Mobile. Right. Well, that, that worked well. That ended up being a total crashing disaster. Yes. And then Microsoft unloaded Nokia, and Nokia is now going its own way. And did, now... did Google not buy Nokia briefly? I think so, but it was yeah. like 30 seconds. I don't okay, so Bell Labs is now owned by Nokia. Okay, so back in August 1969 was the summer of 69. Should I go get my guitar? Summer of 60. Anyway, um, yeah, back in... Canadian song, but yeah. It is, it is. Brian Adams, summer of 69. It's a great song. Played it till my fingers bled. Was the summer of 69. Anyway, because um, he had an old six string that he bought at five and dime. I ain't going there. Okay, anyway, <laughs> I, 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 it's my, it, the music is in me, dude. The music is in me. I can't help it. But okay, so August 1969, you've got uh, Ken Thompson who walks into the lab. His wife had given birth or something like that, so he had some time to kill at that point, uh, you know, as things were settling down. Or I don't know, he was trying to get away from the baby crying, I forget. And he sat down and he went and coded uh, Unix, or the first incarnation thereof. And then uh, Dennis Ritchie comes along and creates the C programming language. And then, uh, and then you know, a few weeks later, Linux comes out when Linus Torvalds arrives. Well, I mean, there was... Have a, I got the timeline right here? There was a bit of a gap from when Unix was invented to when Linux reinvented it, right? I mean, essentially, Linux was an experiment to prove that Unix could work on these little janky PCs, which the entire world, sort of one little company called SCO, uh, thought Unix can't run on PCs, the stupid little Intel stuff. It needs risk processors and it needs, uh, it needs all these fun things. And you had Motorola chips that were done just for, for Unix. And, and for 30 seconds, you had Windows NT that was meant to run on all these risk processors, but then it faded. But you had Unix that were running on all these weird processors, um, you know, uh, risk chips from a company called MIPS, and Motorola had their own, uh, they had their own, for a while their risk chips were the, the big thing and mainly they ran Unix. And so you had all these mini computers that were doing all sorts of things at small and medium businesses running Unix. And then, um, but people are saying, you know, these PCs are becoming ubiquitous. You know, everyone's getting a PC. Why can't these things run Unix? And so um, as it turns out, Microsoft, invented a version of Unix for PCs, which was called Xenix. Ah, yeah, that's, that, exactly, yes, yes. And so, and then commercial implementation of Xenix and selling it for PCs was done by this company called the Santa Cruz Operation, SCO. 
Yeah. And so for the longest time, if you wanted to run Unix on a PC, you went with SCO. And they had quite a good business going. And I'm quite sure that there's still a number of POS systems in the world that are still running on SCO, Unix or Xenix or whatever, uh, because they were stable as anything. And I remembered buying PCs and plugging these octopus cards into them. So you had a PC and you ran like eight serial ports. So you had eight dumb terminals that were connected to this PC, struggling to try and do the same thing as these mighty systems from DEC and IBM or whatever. And they weren't fast, but they, they did the job and they were very, very uh, cost effective at the time. I remember working with a number of companies that implemented these as you know, control systems, point of sale systems, uh, you know, uh, guest registration systems and things like this. And they did a really, really good job of it. But they always seemed to hit a wall. Unix on the PC was always the poor cousin to the stuff on the mini computers. And then comes Linux. Then comes a guy that says, I'm going to reinvent this stuff using an open source model where I'm going to get the world to help decode it. And we're going to prove that Unix-ish on a PC is not the poor, dumber cousin of Unix. Now, now I just, I just, I just want to make it clear that as with a lot of these great ideas, okay, I don't think that Linus Torvalds thought for a moment. I mean, if you, if you take a look at that famous email from August 25th, 1991, he actually says, I don't think it'll ever work on anything much better than a 286 or a 386. Like he never for one minute thought that this would be the kind of an operating system that would be running on major computer systems. Like that, it, it wasn't planned that way. You never even imagined that that would but be possible. But that's the nice thing about being able to work in a community and working in an open source model. Something that may not occur to you may occur to somebody else. Yep, and agreed. So, yep. And so, yes. So step one was making it work well. So once it worked well, all of a sudden people are saying, well, they're starting to cluster all these mini computers. What happened if we clustered together a bunch of PCs? And they ended up finding that strapping together a bunch of PCs running Linux <laughs> ended up being as fast as some of these vaunted microcomputers. Right. And in fact, that was some of the first supercomputers that were and, out there. And they, these, and they yeah. never looked back. Um, yeah. you know, you're talking about the, letter, the letters between Torvalds and Tannenbaum. And so, yep. yeah, Tannenbaum had his own thing going, right? Where he had his own implementation of, of Unix. I don't remember if that was QNX, the one that was bought out by, by BlackBerry. Uh, yes, it was actually QNX is BlackBerry. Or, and yeah. uh, anyway, so you, you had all these re-implementations and, and there was a lot of jealousy at, the point, at this point. How is this, how is this Finnish guy with his ragtag team of collaborators how is he actually putting together something that's more stable, more robust, and way less expensive than we can get on these Vaxes or, 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 you know, or these IBM midframes and so on? And for the longest time, the Unix people couldn't figure it out at all. And so it was a combination of, uh, of commercial trashing, as badly as Microsoft ever did. The, the original Unix companies were not kind to, to Linux. Oh, yeah, I know that, yes. Uh, and, and basically, it was a toy. It was this. And, uh, oh, of course. And yeah. so uh, they, they had this weird dynamic going on 
whereas Linux was dependent on Unix for its interfaces and the way it looked outwardly and that kind of thing. But in it was going in totally different directions and was looking absolutely super geeky, right? One of the first distributions was this thing called Yggdrasil. <laughs> and, yes. and so that's not exactly a commercially viable name. Yeah, but, but again, again, the, the idea of it being something that was commercially viable, something that was going to be running honest to God important systems somewhere was, was just not in the picture at the beginning. I mean, I started playing with it in 1992. The very first Linux distribution I loaded up was in 1992. And <clears throat> for the first couple of years, it was, for me, it was, I was actually working with Unix systems, with big Unix systems, Risk System 5 and stuff like this on IBM. And it was just the idea that I could run something like that on something as cheap as a PC. Because, I mean, I still remember where you, where you sold systems that were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and even millions of dollars. And to me, it was just the coolness of being able to do what's on that big system on something smaller. I'm not even sure that I thought that there was something, you know, uh, big or commercially viable in the first couple of incarnations of this thing oh. that I saw. It was just cool that you oh, could I do did. it. I did. The first time I discovered Linux was at a... Uh, a trade show. Uh, it was uh, Unix Expo at the Javits Center at New York. And what year was that? What year was that? Do you know? Mid nineties. Uh, see, I'm talking '92 here. Like in '92, there wasn't a okay. lot to. But I. But there were two booths. There was Red Hat and Caldera had booths at Unix Expo, and I went and I spent about two hours at those booths, and I was sold. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, the thing is, I think we've got another hour's worth we could do <laughs> as we're both going back into memory lanes. And, and ah, this is terrible. This is terrible. You know, and, and what I, what's, what's weird is whenever you bring that sort of stuff up or like I'm looking at all the penguins, you know, sitting on your shelf behind you. I don't even have penguins on my shelf behind me here. I think I've got like two penguins in the entire house. So, you know, yeah, you, but you got artwork. I do. I do actually. Yeah, it's not a bad piece of artwork sitting on the back there. You know, there we go. See? Yeah. See, you, you, you can have a look Where's at my, it. But, my, and, I, and I'm not sure that Sally would let me put the penguins, you know, on the shelf. My, my in the living artwork room. Is, like, is, is a poster that has all the swear words that George Carlin uh, had referenced, uh, a, a poster that I bought at the National Comedy Center. So that's what, what constitutes artwork to me these days. Hey, are you watching any TV? Uh, Do you watch any of the superhero shows? Have you watched Titans? Yes. But we may need to bring this up another week. We're already getting kind of... Oh, I know, I know. But I'm, I'm trying to come up with some homework that I can give you. Because there's Titans and then there's a other one on Amazon. I think it's called The Boys or something. The Oh, The Boys. It's fantastic. It's, so you now have all these really dark takes on superheroes that we could do for another hour. <laughs> All right, all right, all right, all right. We'll, we'll be good. And wait, so, so what do you say I give you some homework? Have you watched The Boys or Titans? Yes. Yeah. Oh, you have? Oh, yes. I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a good chunk into both. And, and I must admit, though, my guilty pleasure is the Teen Titans cartoon. Oh, I, oh, Teen Titans Go? Yeah, including the movie. Oh, there's a movie for Teen Titans Go? Yes. Get out. How do I not know this? There's your homework. Okay, that's my homework. I have to check it out. No, I love Teen Titans Go. It's 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 completely irreverent. It it has 
no pity for anything resembling norms of any kind or, or, or it has no respect for its source material. It's absolutely fantastic. I love it. We should talk about it next time. Okay. So <laughs> I've got more TV to watch. You've got a, an animated movie to watch. And I guess this is a, a good way to wrap up right now. All right. Sounds good. So, okay. So just, you know, just so we're not ending abruptly, I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually going to put like an outro after this. Okay. Will that make you feel better? Well, yeah, now that we've, now that we're into episode five and beyond, now we got to actually take this stuff seriously. All right. So, okay. So next week, no politics or next time around, no politics, unless you want to tell me what's happening in China while you're down there. And, uh, cause you know, that would be interesting. That would actually be fascinating. And, uh, and I want to go back and, 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 and no distro wars. Oh, by the way, Fedora 31 is out. Should we talk about Fedora 31? Should we talk about Fedora? That will be a monologue. <laughs> for you or for me <laughs> hint not me <laughs> all right all right fine fine all right so let, let me scratch fedora big bar through fedora 31 oh, there you go you know i'll give you as much time as you need yes i mean you know the the, the red hat people will cry if we don't say something nice about fedora whether or not Red Hat, which is now owned by IBM, sheds any tears at all, just does not keep me up at night. <laughs> all right. Bye, Evan. Have a nice trip. Okay. Thanks a lot. Okay. Take care. Hi. This is Marcel, after the show. If you like what Evan and I are doing here, there are many ways that you can help support the podcast. The most important and easiest of them all is just to tell your friends, family, dog, cat, goldfish, enemies. Just tell everybody about the podcast and have them listen as well. You can also review it on Anchor.fm or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you happen to listen to podcasts. If you have a blog, you can blog about it. If you have your own podcast, hey, that would be cool. If you have your own podcast, you could actually talk about our podcast in your podcast. If you're going to do that, by the way, you should let us know because, hey, we'd like to listen too. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.